Hi, this is Rabbi Eric Levy. I'm pleased to bring to you the fourth Aliyah of the Sidra of Va'etchanan. Aliyah 4 is the beginning of Moshe's second speech, which starts after a short, uh, essentially starts with a short introduction uh, of the Ten Commandments. Um, and to go into all of them in detail, all the commandments in detail, would take you know, lessons upon lessons, which is beyond the scope of what we could do here. Instead, what I'll do as I go over these Ten Commandments is to focus on a few points of interest um, and since this is Moshe reviewing the Ten Commandments, uh, that is the second time he's relating them, the, I'll point out some differences between the first time, which are related in Sefer Shemot, and this time, which is taking place 40 years later, at the foot of the Pisgah Mountain. And Moshe called to the entirety of Israel, and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the laws that I speak today to your ears, meaning audibly for all of you to hear, and learn them and be careful to perform them. So begins the second speech by Moshe, which really is made up in the following parts. First, there's the Ten Commandments, which is this Aliyah. Then there is um, the experience of hearing those commandments at Har Sinai and issues that go along with it. That's the next Aliyah, Aliyah number five. Then there's a series of exhortations regarding why and how the law must be kept. That is the last two Aliyot, and that will go into Akev as well, the next Sidra. And then that ends, uh, that, that series of exhortations, which according to Rabbi Liebteg is called the mitzvah in the singular, the mitzvah, ends essentially with the same words as uh, this section opens. That is, you've got to keep the laws, which I am now about to repeat. After that, Moshe actually details the laws, which in my opinion, uh, focus specifically on laws that necessitate a successful establishment of religious, political, and social life in the land of Israel. That it's all about, you know, the fact that the nation is about to go into Israel. That second part of the speech begins in chapter 12, and, and it begins sensibly enough with Eila Chukim Mishpatim. These are the Chukim the Mishpatim. That is, the exhortations are called the mitzvah, the commandment, and the actual laws of the Chukim and the Mishpatim, which you have to do when you get to Eretz Yisrael. Um, and that ends in chapter 19 with an epilogue which wraps up with the same text to show us that it's completed. Hayom so that's how you know that the te- that the speech is over. Now the second speech, which as I said breaks down uh, really into two main sections besides the Ten Commandment experience between why to keep the laws and the laws themselves, is preceded uh, by the Ten Commandments and the experience of that theophany, the the experience of receiving the Ten Commandments from God, whether directly or indirectly, as we'll see. The importance of those events will be the issue of the next Aliyah, but in any event, let's get back to our text. The Lord our God made, or literally cut, a covenant with us at Chorev. Chorev is, of course, another name for Har Sinai. And the covenant is obviously the Ten Commandments themselves. That is, these are the commandments that you have to keep, and the benefits we will see. That is God's side of the deal. We will see. Now, one can already detect that Moshe is being polemical here. Moshe is sort of pushing an idea by using the word imanu. God cut a covenant with us. Because 
with us, Imanu is not literally true. Remember, he's speaking to the second generation now. Most of them were not even born yet when the Torah was given at Chorev. They're not at Chorev. They're 40 years later at Rosha, at the bottom of the Pisgah mountain or the bottom of the Pisgah. Nonetheless, Moshe proceeds slightly polemically. It was not with our fathers that the Lord made this covenant, but with us. We who are here today, all of us alive. Um, that The argument Moshe is making by stating things which are prima facie not true is that the second people need to see themselves as if they themselves received the Torah. And of course, this is the source for the famous Midrash, uh, Midrash, that all future Israelite souls were actually present, even though they weren't born yet, they were present at Chorev during the giving of the Torah, because Moshe is saying, listen, you were there. But I don't think that Moshe is trying to say something that's literally true. He just wants the people to be, to see themselves. The people who are going into the promised land must live to, uh, according to God's laws as given by Moshe and as witnessed and received by the by the first generation. So they, the second generation, have to put themselves and imagine themselves that they were there. Um, specifically, he says, face to face did the Lord speak with you at the mountain from within the fire. Now, even from the first generation, that is only true for the Ten Commandments, and maybe only the first two of the Ten Commandments. Most experience of that theophany was not face-to-face. In reality, Moshe had to serve as a middleman, which is the whole experience of which is going to be described in the next Aliyah, that theophany. The reason was because people fled from the mountain in fear from that experience of seeing God directly. And that is exactly what Moshe says now. I stood between you and uh, uh, you at that time, that is between you and God and the Lord at that time, to tell you the word of the Lord because you were afraid of the fire and you did not go up to the mountain. Lamor saying, I'll get back to the issue of Lamor and what that's referring to in a second, but Moshe says we have a little problem here. On one hand, first of all, you're not the first generation, so you have to imagine yourself the first generation. But even the first generation did not, in 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 a full sense, experience God face to face. They did, but just a little bit before they flipped out and ran away. So I had to be the intermediary, and that's going to affect uh, the relationship that you have with God and his commandments, as we will see. Um, getting back to the issue of what this Lamor is referring to, because it's sort of dangling at the end of the verse. So either it means Lamor, the people said, we can't handle it, we're running away, you motion go for us. Or Lamor is referring to what God is speaking at this time uh, through Moshe, the actual Ten Commandments. Um, and now we're going to hear uh, what God spoke, those Ten Commandments that God spoke to B'nai Israel and then to Moshe when B'nai Israel found the whole experience too overwhelming. I am the Lord your God who took you out of the land of Egypt, out of slavery, out of bondage. That's commandment number one. Commandment number two. Lo yelecha Elohim achrim al panai, lo ta'aselecha fesel, kol t'munah, sheba shamayim imal, v'asheba aris mitachat, v'asheba mayim mitachat, l'ares, lo t'shtacha velahem, v'lo ta'ovdeim, ki anochi Adonai lavecha, el kana pokei l'avon avod al banim v'al shileshim, al ribim l'sonai, v'osech chesel l'alafim lo avai u'lushomrei mitzotai. You shall have no other gods besides me. Do not make any other statue of any form that is either in the heavens above or in the lands beneath that or that is in the water beneath those lands. Don't bow down to them and don't worship them because I am a zealous God. Note zealous. Kana means zealous here, not jealous. 
I will call to test the sins of the fathers upon their sons until the third and fourth generation for those who hate me. The simple sense of this, since it says elsewhere in the Torah not to punish fathers for the sins of their sons and vice versa, is that if the children continue to behave in these sone, in these hateful ways, uh, worshipping idols and denying God's uh, omnipotence, then the sins transfer down from generation to generation and build up, and the punishments build up accordingly like a rolling snowball. The good news, however, is that alternatively, God does chesed lalafim. He does kind acts to those who love me and keep my commandments. That is, God does acts, uh, uh, the, that is, he takes care of people who love him, and that goes on for thousands of generations, not just for three or four. That is, he really lets it build up into a huge beneficial snowball. Um, from this point on, that is from commandment number three and beyond, God is not speaking in first person as he did in the first two commandments. He's speaking in third, uh, it's, the, the commandments are being, are speaking about God in the third person. And that indicates that it's probably here, right after the second commandment, that p- the people were overwhelmed and they ran away and they said to Moshe, you know, you go up and speak to God for us and bring us back the word rather than hearing God in the first person. So Ibn Ezra, and, and I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, coming back just a little bit to the idea of punishing uh, fa- uh, kids for their father, for their parents' sins. Um, while it seems capricious, I would like to mention that, you know, in the biological world, in the physical world, there's no question that the physical sins of the parents, like smoking or drug use or abusing children, these physical um, uh, sins, if you will, do have multi-generational consequences. Even though the kids haven't done anything wrong, if you sit around in a smoker's house long enough, you just pay the price. It's a biological fact that sin does not limit itself just to the perpetrator, but in very much has an effect on the offspring of the perpetrator. And I, I think if that's true biologically, I think it must be true spiritually as well, um, that a spiritual sin could have a multi-generational impact as well, not because God is being capricious, but because that's just the way it works. There's cause and effect, and effect sometimes uh, extends beyond uh, the four corners of a person's own sins. Anyway, getting to famine three, Lotisad Shem Adonai Lachalashav, Kilo Yinake Adonai et Ashayisad Shmalashav, you may not carry, meaning carry on your lips, meaning speak the name of your Lord God in vain or in falsehood. Um, uh, indeed, the Lord will not cleanse, means he will never forgive one who carries his name falsely. Uh, the details of this law are, are too complex to get into right now, swearing in God's name, swearing falsely in court, which is sort of connected to a later commandment. Uh, but the simple sense is that um, somebody who misuses God's name uh, is, is essentially uh, diminishes the the relationship that the nation has with God, and that is something which doesn't clean off uh, so fast, if at all. Moving on to commandment number four, guard the Sabbath day to keep it holy, just like your God had commanded you. Uh, Famously, of course, the first narrative of the Ten Commandments back in the book of Shemot says, Zachor, Yom remember, and here it says, Shamor, guard and keep. And of course, most people know the famous Midrash, that God spoke both things at the same time, which was an out-and-out miracle, because how could you speak two words in one utterance? Um, and, and essentially, Moshe has to relate those two utterances that take place at the same time, as if in stereo, where one speaker uh, in uh, in Sefer Shemot is saying uh, Zachor, and the other speaker, the other uh, stereo speaker is saying Shamor here. Um, Ibn Ezra takes a major issue with this Midrash, uh, 
the, the complexity of seeing such a miracle where God says two things at the same time and, and a human being can understand such a thing. And there's no way to cover all of Ibn Ezra's issues and all the other possible issues here. But I'd like to try the following. And if you find what I'm about to say is out of line regarding the differences between the first retelling of the, of the uh, Ten Commandments and Moshe's retelling them in the, in the 40th generation. So if you find what I'm saying uh, awkward or, or inappropriate, so please feel free to uh, ignore it. But uh, to me, it makes a lot of sense. Um, Hebrew is a holy language. It's, it's a Lashon HaKodesh. And it is perfect for giving humans the ability to have religious understanding of God. But to say that Hebrew, a human language, can capture the very essence of God just doesn't seem right. For instance, I'll give you an example. When we see an object, um, because light bounces off of it, we humans can only see in the visible spectrum. But that object is reflecting light beyond the visible spectrum, off the red range on one side and off the violet range on the other side. That is real information that's being transmitted or, or reflected, um, well, really transmitted, that's defining the object that one quote-unquote sees. We just can't see that part of the spectrum. Now, the visible spectrum suffices in most cases for us humans. We can, even though we know there's more that can be gleaned, the heat of an object, uh, perhaps its molecular structure and the movements of its atoms, but, but by and large, we get enough information and it satisfies what we humans need. I think so to God. When God transmits any thought or word, or such as these Sabbath laws, it contains ideas which are beyond the ability to capture with, with the simple words achor or a simple word shamor. It, it, it contains information which is both shamor and zachor at the same time, and 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 intertwining of the two, and even more that we can't even uh, you know can't even give expression to, and, and we certainly can't express these two things simultaneously, or, or Moshe felt that we couldn't. So he conveyed one at a time. He took God's beyond the visible spectrum and broke it down into two visible uh, or audible parts. Um, now, which one was actually inscribed in the in the stone tablets? Was it Zachor or Shamor? So some say, of course, it was a miraculous inscription that said both. Uh, some say Zachor appeared on the first tablets, uh, which were broken, and Shamor on the second tablets. But I, I lead to the idea that it was Zachor, which is described in Sefer Shemot. But here, when Moshe is repeating the commandments, he throws in Shamor to express an idea that God conveyed to him, but which he could not write down at the same time in the same space because reality simply wouldn't allow it. Physical reality, physics simply wouldn't allow it. And keep in mind that what I'm saying here, again, is is maybe a little out there for some, because I'm saying that Moshe has some ability to restate things as necessary in order to convey God's will, even though that actually wasn't chiseled on the on the commandments themselves. But it's still what God told Moshe to convey to the Jewish people at one point or another. Um it is clear that Moshe is inserting words here. This, this, this re-relating by Moshe of the commandments, he's clearly adding some of his own words. For instance, when he said just above, those words, as God had commanded you, i.e. 40 years ago, were clearly not written on the tablets. It's Moshe's own insertion. It's a parenthetical phrase, meaning keeping Shabbat exactly as described when I first read you the commandments some 40 years ago. Is not part of the Ten Commandments. It's part of Moshe explaining the Ten Commandments to the second generation. Again, if this seems out there, I apologize. Ignore what I'm uh, what I've said. 
Uh, but in any event, let's continue with the Shabbat commandments, which has another few other change, which has a few other changes, which I think are worth no, uh, worth some note. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. The work is, of course, described as milacha, which specifically juxtaposed, uh, was juxtaposed back in Sefer Shemot with the milacha of the Mishkan, which is how the rabbis understand, based on oral law, that the work that can't be done on Shabbat is based on the 39 types of work which were done in the, uh, in the Mishkan. Um, and the seventh day is a Sabbath for your Lord God, meaning not for him to do, meaning you rest on Shabbat for the sake of following God's commandments, and also because you want to imitate God, and that he ceased his work uh, creating uh, when he created the universe, that he rested on the seventh day and made that day holy. That, however, is not the reason given here for the need of the Jewish people, the Israelites, to keep the Torah. Um, back in Shemot, it was because God created the world in six days and rested on the seventh that the Shabbat was to be kept. But here, the reason is different, we, as we will see. In any event, returning to the text, do not do any work, neither you nor your son nor your daughter nor male or female uh, servant nor your ox nor your donkey nor any domesticated animal nor the sojourner, the ger, who lives in your gates. In Shemot, it says only Bam Techa. Um, which can mean your animals in general, or probably your domesticated animals. Here, however, um, it adds the words ox, shore, and donkey, chamor, and it adds the word kol behemtecha, all of your behemot. Now, I, I would just suggest, and again, ignore it if it makes you uncomfortable, but I would suggest that the reason why Moshe is emphasizing shore and chamor here is that the Israelis are about to enter the promised land. Um, farming, therefore, is going to be an issue for the, on, on the Sabbath for the first time. It, it is something that they have not been doing in the desert. There's been no farming in the desert. So therefore, Moshe is emphasizing the two main animals that are used in agriculture, the ox, which was used for plowing, but plowing up the, the dirt so that, so it could be seeded, and the donkey for carrying the produce. Um, since these two animals will, for the first time as they step foot into Israel, become relevant, uh, and, and the people will be tempted to use them on Shabbat, Moshe had to specify, listen, you're going to run into a new issue called agriculture. Don't don't let your animals work thinking that you could rest, but your animals could do all the dirty work for you on the Sabbath. Um, in Shemot, those animals simply would not have been pertinent for 39 years. The people would have been like, what ox? What donkeys? And therefore, Moshe may simply have skipped that when relating it the first time. Um, uh, but here, he needs to mention, also Moshe adds here, in order that or as a result of which your male and female servants will rest like you. And that gets to the issue of the reason we need to keep Shabbat. And Shemot, the reason we keep Shabbat, is due to God ceasing his own work on the seventh day of creation. But here, the focus on the fact that the Jews themselves were slaves in Egypt, and because God redeemed them, they owe him one. They owe God one. They're obligated to God to keep his commandment, to keep his Sabbath. And moreover, they must treat, because the whole reason why they're free to keep the Sabbath is because God removed them from slavery, they have to treat their own slaves not as slaves, like they were treated, but as intentioned servants, people with rights, people with the ability to rest, not not people that you could just trot upon 24-7 until they die. Um, that is, 
the reason why Shabbat is Shabbat is because of God's rest on the, uh, at the time of creation. But the reason why the Israelites, we, need to keep Shabbat is because God redeemed us from Egypt and we became his servants. And, and, and now that the people are going to become finally really free because they're finally going to enter their own land and they're going to have servants and indentured servants, quote unquote slaves, they have to remember what rights a slave has. That is not a slave but a servant, a person who has a right to rest on the Sabbath and not be treated like you were treated in Egypt. And you will remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God took you out of there with a strong hand because of this. The Lord your God commanded you to perform, i.e., these laws and ceremonies of the Sabbath day. And now we move on to commandment number five. Um, I teach teenagers. I always say this is the hardest commandment for teenager. Honor your mother and father. This is the first commandment where a reward is connected to it. Honor your father and mother just as the Lord your God commanded you. Again, those words, are Moshe's parenthetical comments. They're not in the original commandments. In order that your days be lengthened, that will be good for you on the land that God is giving you. The rabbis understand this double benefit, meaning that you'll have a good life in this world and a life in the world to come as well. But the plain sense works fine, which means a person needs not only that they're going to live a long life, but that the life will be good. A long life of misery is, is not the best thing in the world, not something you can look forward to. Uh, the words, in order that it be good for you, were not mentioned in the first telling of this commandment. Um, perhaps Moshe wants to stress here that right before they're about to go to Israel, and they know they're about to face a long and protracted war, um, that they're not just going to live a long life, but live it well. Perhaps that's why Moshe stresses that new idea that your life will not only be long, but be good as well. Uh, commandments 6 to 8 are pretty straightforward. Lo tirtzach, don't murder. Lo tinav, don't commit adultery. Lo tignov, don't steal. Now the rabbis understand this is kidnapping because they want these laws to come up to death penalty uh, uh, type crimes. That is really serious crimes and uh, stealing, they felt didn't cut it, but stealing a human being does. Uh, nonetheless, the plain sense of don't steal works fine because it's a basic moral principle. Uh, the next commandment, number uh, uh, nine, don't bear false witness against your fellow. Uh, the word shav here is used and sheker is used in Shemot, but um, I'll just stick with the Ibn Ezra that says that the two words are essentially synonymous and it's the meaning which is most important rather than the specific word. Finally, the last commandment, Don't cover your fellow's wife. Don't desire your fellow's house or his fields or his male and female servants, uh, his ox or his donkey or anything your fellow has. What's added here, what's different from the first telling of the commandments back some 39, 40 years ago, um, is the word titaveh. Um, there in Shemot it says tachmo twice here, it says the word titaveh. The word iva, aleph vav, is really synonymous with the word uh, chamad, chetmem, 
Dalid, uh, both mean to desire, but the difference here is that Titaveh is in the Hitpael uh, uh, Binyan, the the construct, the, which is reflexive, something that you do to yourself, as if the meaning is don't work yourself up into desiring. And I think this fits perfectly into Iba's explanation of this commandment, specifically the the difficulty of, of how one could be punished for a thought crime. Judaism does not usually punish for thought crimes. That is what? If your neighbor has a nice BMW, you know, and you you have a you know a bit of jealous and desirous feeling, so you're over one of the Ten Commandments, you're, you you transgress. So what Ibn Ezra explains um, is, is that just like one doesn't dare let oneself even think about certain hard things like incest. He says, you know, if one would think about sleeping with one's sister, one wouldn't even allow oneself to think that. One would become nauseous and shy away from even thinking such a horrid thought. And and what God is saying here is the same way you would feel about that obvious um, anathema, uh, act of anathema, that's the way you should feel about your fellow's possessions, whether it be his wife, his house, his goods, his money, whatever it is. That is, you have to reflexively, in the hitpa'el, to, to go over and over, to force yourself, to reflect upon yourself, to make yourself not desire these things, to feel about the possibility of taking your neighbor's BMW would be as bad as doing a terrible act of, of incest. And, and, and that causes this person to intrinsically create a disgust and to build in a deterrent against this bad behavior. I like that very much. I think the Ebenezer really captured it, and I think it fits the Hitpa'el, the Binyan, the grammatical use of the word um, uh, um, uh, of, of uh, Tit Aven. Um, also added here um, is the need to not covet the fields, the Sadeh, which did not appear some 39 years ago when Moshe related it there. And again, perhaps because for 39 years the Jews had known fields. I mean, it wasn't an issue if you said to a Jew in the first generation coming out of the desert, uh, don't, uh, don't covet your neighbor's fields, they'd be like, uh, what's a field? Uh, or what field? Uh, but now that they're about to go into Israel and, and, and land ownership is going to become an essential thing, it's important for Moshe to relate it here as part of the do not desire. Another difference between um, uh, the first telling of the Debrot in year one and this telling in year 40 is that the word bait or house usually means family is mentioned second here and wife comes first. That's the opposite of um, of what happened in the first commandments. I, I, I can't come up with a difference between why it would be wife and house here, but house and wife uh, back in year number one. Uh, in the next Aliyah, we move back to the story of the Theophany uh, 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 of Mount Sinai. That is not the commandments themselves, but the experience of of hearing those commandments and the challenges that the people face in hearing directly from God face to face, as it were.